Kind bars just exploded on the scene, didn't they? I mean, one day we're all sitting around and there are no kind bars. And the next day, the kind bars are all over the place. I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing them. Drug stores, health food stores, supermarkets, airports, kiosks, newsstands. They're all over the place. So I was very curious about this business, this company, and who is this guy? Yeah, Daniel has just an incredible story. I mean, a Jewish-Mexican family. His father was a Holocaust survivor, came to the United States, built the whole company himself, became lauded uh, by presidents. And uh, it's really an inspirational story. And I think he's genuinely a good guy who, you know, wants to see good accomplished in the world. And it goes back to some stories that he told uh, from his father surviving in the Holocaust. I remember this one story of a German soldier rolling a potato to his father's feet um, to give him some food, an act that surely would have resulted in the death of the Nazi prison guard if he had been caught. And that's kindness, and that's at the core of what he does. I think kind bars have been popular for a few reasons. I mean, number one, they're, they're pretty good. Number two, this guy is a marketing genius, uh, just getting them out there, partner genius. I mean, he is relentless. I, I think that he thinks about everything, the sourcing, the packaging, the messaging, um, the mission. And, you know, a lot of these companies that put these kind of bars out, they're conglomerates. They're just looking for units or they're entrepreneurs without the wherewithal. He has the combination of the chutzpah and the IQ and the EQ that makes him um, so successful. CEO of Kind, Daniel Levesky. Daniel, great to see you. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me. So let's start off by talking about the core product, your snack bars. I mean, there's so much going on in your life and in your career, but I want to ask you, how did you come up with the idea for those for bars? Um, right before Kind had started for the prior 10 years, a company called PeaceWorks, to use business to bring neighbors together. And as a confused Mexican Jewish attorney trying to get Arabs and Israelis to work together and sell the products in the US, I was making a lot of mistakes. But after 10 years of mistakes, I had kind of figured out the food space, but I was very frustrated with my own snacking options. And when I was skipping lunch or skipping dinner, working in, on my desk or traveling door to door selling our products, I felt that I needed a snack that I could feel good about myself. And I designed Kind knowing that I was not the only person that wanted something that's wholesome and convenient and that was tasty but also nutritionally dense. And uh, after 10 years of a lot of like two steps forward, two steps backward, Kind just took off. Well, you do have this rich story, personal story. You describe yourself as a Mexican Jewish attorney. You grew up in Mexico City. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was born in Mexico. My dad had immigrated, uh, I guess, 25 years before from uh, Europe. He was liberated by American soldiers from the Dachau concentration camp. And then afterwards, he was a refugee. And he came to Mexico. He had nowhere else to go. And he had an aunt and an uncle that had right before the war escaped to Mexico. So he and his father were able to reunite with them and he didn't speak Spanish or English. He didn't, he only had a third grade education. So he educated himself and eventually built a pretty decent business. And I was raised in a immigrant Jewish community within a country that's primarily Catholic. So we were always a, a minority, but my mom 
who came from Tampico, where I think they were the only Jewish family in cattle country. And my grandfather had immigrated the generation before from Poland. He was a cattle farmer in Mexico. Um, so we were ranchers in Mexico. Made sure, my mom, that we really built bridges and learned to treat everybody with respect and humanity. And both my mom's lessons and my dad's experience and their personalities made me really committed throughout my life to try to build bridges and prevent what happened to my dad from happening again to others. We came to the U.S. when I was 16 years old. Your father was a Holocaust survivor, and I think you talk about an act of kindness, surprisingly, that he um, felt in the concentration camp when he got some food from someone. Yeah, there were many moments that he shared with us of the horrible atrocities that he went through and uh, how a child or a human being should never have to go through that, but there are also many moments of courage and kindness amid that, amidst that darkness that he remembered and made sure for us to remember that not every German was bad and not every human being anywhere, even in the darkest moments, has to accept tyranny. And this German soldier, when people were not looking, threw a potato by my dad's feet. And he could have been punished or, or harmed for doing that, but my dad felt uh, that that helped him not sustain himself only with nutrition, but also the fact that that man had looked into my dad's eyes and seen his humanity, I think, helped my dad carry on. It's an amazing story. I've never heard anything like that before. Um, there's, there's some tougher ones. I, I, I bet. I, it's, it's amazing to think that you grew up listening to those, to those yeah. stories. They must have really informed your experience as a, as a child. Yes, and even today, and you and I were talking before about the world and the way we see it, and I think I was definitely shaped by, as a little kid, learning about not just the horrors, but also the courage during those difficult times, and it's very much what guides me to never accept things the way they are and to do whatever I can and not wait for somebody else to do it, to try to build those bridges and try to make sure that we don't take for granted democracy or freedom or uh, rule of law, these things that coming from Mexico and having been the son of a Holocaust survivor, I really cherish in America that essential element of civility and that essential element of uh, kindness and respect that really underpins the social fabric of what makes America great. Truly, that ability of people with differences to be able to forge together, forge common ground and, and solve things together is what I think has made this nation so amazing and we really shouldn't lose it. We really don't want to take any of these things like rule of law, freedom of the press for granted. We need to invest on the, on, in them. So tell us about how you went from a child in Mexico City to the United States to ultimately Stanford Law School. So I uh, we, I, I was in a Jewish school in Mexico, very homogeneous. I went to San Antonio, Texas. My father had by then built a pretty successful duty-free business on the border between Mexico and the U.S. in partnership with four other Holocaust survivors. So it's almost like a, a stereotype or joke, but these five uh, guys that were fighters built a very successful business. And we moved to Texas to be closer to my dad. And in Texas, I was in a public high school and uh, very, very diverse. 
almost like those movies that you watch in Hollywood where as kids I used to watch those movies and like that's just Hollywood that cannot be real but it was real with those gigantic pep rallies in Texas and we're all like Friday night lights and very much like that and very much all those stereotypes of like the punk kids and the rapper kids and the drama kids and the um uh, and the jocks and the, yeah. and the right. preppies and mm -hmm. I didn't understand that there were all these subgroups I thought they were all one so one day I would come dressed like Michael Jackson and the other guy yeah. was dressed with a polo shirt and one day I would sit down with the black kids and the other one with the white kids and the Hispanic kids and one day this girl Amber Alonso came to me and she's like and she was a punk girl yeah. who I had a kind of a crush on and she's like and Amber if you're out there hello <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the first time I, I share this publicly but um, she's like, Daniel, you have to define yourself. You can't be a drama kid and a debate kid and this. You have to choose one and sit with one of the groups, You're destroying the whole uh, social ecosystem in our school. But I never did. I was friends with all the kids. And I think that was part of what carried me that I really try always to challenge the conventional wisdom that you have to. Like for me, the thought that I cannot be proud of being an American and be proud of my Mexican heritage and be proud of being Jewish and be proud of being a citizen of the world completely dumbfounds me. Why can't you be the most patriotic American right. and be very proud of where you come from and what, there are things that enrich all of us. So you went to Stanford and then you worked for Sullivan and Cromwell and McKinsey, yeah. pretty straight and narrow. So I went to Trinity University right. for undergrad, then Stanford for law school. And then I had a, a few short stints in consulting and in, in legal work. But my passion was to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, I was very determined to use economic forces to bring neighbors together and to use the power of economics to shatter cultural stereotypes, to humanize people, and to cement relationships. That was the theory that I wrote in college. And right after law school, I tried to turn that theory into practice, and that's what led to the creation of PeaceWorks. All right, so let's take a step back and talk about your entire uh, career and life and your work right now. You have snack bars, you have philanthropic endeavors, nonprofits. How would you describe yourself and what you do right now, Daniel? Um, a, a very fortunate human being that has an even greater responsibility in the world we're living. I feel like I'm in a very weird situation where my father went through one of the greatest horrors in history. I've had like an incredible life with, in a, on a nation under peace. I have the opportunity to have an education from my parents. I've been so blessed. And then now I'm seeing in front of me the rise of totalitarianism. Uh, in America, not just threats of the ones of the nature that I shared about against the rule of law or about meritocracy or democracy or freedom of the press and all these things, but also in the industry that I work in, rising obesity, rising uh, inflammatory diseases because of what we're putting in our bodies, all the unhealthy stuff that we're putting in our bodies rather than healthful ingredients. So I feel like I have a lot of weight on my shoulders. I'm very blessed to have a beautiful family. And when people ask me how you're doing, like, Personally, I'm doing great. My, I'm so blessed to have a, a, an amazing family and kids and wife and a, an incredible team to work with. But I'm really terrified about what is ahead of us. I'm really, really concerned that across the world there's this arch of totalitarianism. Yeah, go to dinner for me. It'll be a lot of fun. People that like must be hanging. I was like, oh my God, this guy's a little heavy duty. But I really do feel um, 
an extra responsibility to do everything I can to try to prevent what happened to my father from happening to society again in the coming decades. And then not to mention the environmental challenges and plastic in our oceans and climate change. I think we have, you know, you have two kids, I have four kids. What are we going to inherit to our children? I think we have a lot of work to do. I want to drill down on sort of each one of the things that you're working on. Um, let's talk again, though, about the snack bars. Um, sure. Talk to me about that business. How is it doing? How big is it now? Are those bars healthy? There was some uh, blowback about that, of course, and the state of that business. Yeah, so uh, Kind Bars are doing really well. We are one of the leading, we basically disrupted the nutrition bar space and created a healthy snack bar category and we're the leaders in that category or in that segment. Uh, we, How did you get so big? I mean, all of a sudden they were just everywhere. Did yeah. you have to spend a lot of money in promotion? No, the, the interesting thing about the way Kind grew is I was just really organic. Like people just loved the product. They saw the transparent wrapper. They saw the products that they were getting. It was very straightforward that they knew what they were putting in their bodies. And it's, um, it's still among the top 10 nutrition bars. We're the only one that can make that kind promise that we lead with ingredients that you can see and pronounce that are nutritionally dense that are whole ingredients recommended for daily consumption, like whole nuts, heart-healthy almonds, whole grains, whole fruits. Of the top 10 nutrition bars, every one of our competitors leads with date paste or uh, brown rice syrup or organic tapioca syrup, all basic forms of sugar. That's why a kind dark chocolate and sisal, which is a leading bar in our portfolio, has five grams of sugar and Every one of our competitors, every single one of our leading competitors has two to five X more sugar than a kind bar. So their leading products have anywhere between 13 grams and 27 grams. And uh, are they, are kind bars healthy, do you think? It's healthier to eat uh, raw almond or fruit, but yes, out of packaged foods is probably one of the most helpful products. And that's why we have a nutrition collective with over 5,000 nutritionists that self-report that they recommend Kind Bars. And if you ever go to the nutrition conference, Kind is like a, like a poster boy for what they would like to advocate in terms of nutrition. How big is the, the company now? We have about 700 team members. Mm -hmm. We are in several hundred thousand stores. And it's been, re we don't share our mm -hmm. sales because it's uh, a privately held company. Right. But others have reported that we sell over a billion dollars at retail, mm -hmm. and that's not incorrect in terms of wow. the space where we inhabit. From nothing, how many From years 10, ago? From $10,000. And, uh, well, Peace Works when started. Did you, with when did you found the company? I'm sorry. I started Peace Works in 1994, yeah. and right. I brought in investors for $100,000 in 1998, $25,000 of which two years later, one of my investors said they wanted back. And I, uh, was in a very tough position, but I didn't want to have an investor that wasn't happy. So I gave them back their money and I skipped my salary for a few months. And then my salary then was $24,000 and I was going door by door. And the first 10 years were not easy and not good and not overly successful. I thought I was being successful because I, you know, in the scheme of things, how I saw it, but compared to Kind, it wasn't. And then when Kind was conceived, I wanted to do it out of peace work so that my investors that believed in me would be able to benefit from that. And it 
they did really well. Their $75,000 turned into tens of millions of dollars. Wow. Um, and is it connected to the philanthropy? In other words, do you give a certain amount of the profits to your um, philanthropic yeah. endeavors, or how does that work? Uh, yes, and more. So I personally do a lot on my own because I want the company to operate on its own in a very competitive way, but Kind itself has donated over $25 million in the last, between Kind and the Kind Foundation, we've donated over $25 million to several charities and to several projects. We also have a, an operating program called Empatico, which is what I'm proudest of, which is really, really cool that we're incubating. We eventually want it to become independent, but Empatico is a platform to allow uh, children across the world to connect with one another, their classrooms to connect. So imagine an Uber or Airbnb application, but instead of connecting you to a car service or to a place you want to stay in, it connects classrooms very seamlessly and frictionlessly. So a teacher in Northwest Arkansas cannot open the horizons to their children and connect them to kids in Memphis, Tennessee, who have never met someone different from them, or go to Nigeria and connect them to kids there. And you can complete curricular courses together so that children are learning to navigate differences and solve things together. So if in third grade they need to learn about cartography, about mapping, they can actually connect the map for how to get to Northwest Arkansas to Nigeria and stuff. Or if they're learning about the weather, they can do it in a much richer way. But it helps them develop social emotional learning skills, helps them develop uh, emotional intelligence and kindness and empathy. So while it's helping to strengthen the kids, it also helps strengthen the world by helping people understand our connection. Is this for secondary schools mostly? And then how do they actually connect? Would a teacher connect with another teacher first to set things up and discuss things? Yeah, it's classroom to classroom. It's a technology platform. And we're starting with seven to 11 year olds because mm -hmm. educators and scientists have found out that there's a sweet spot for emotional intelligence development, that if between ages seven and 11, you expand people's horizons and let them understand the context they live in, they're more likely throughout their lives to have less prejudices than if your father or mother are telling you, you are superior and you shall kill the infidel. And if you are formed in isolation, thinking that the other is a monster, you might carry those prejudices for the rest of your life. As opposed to being very proud of who you are, where you come from, and your religion, ethnicity, nationality, but also understanding that we're all human beings and that we have to solve these challenges together. Climate change is not going to discriminate and only hurt one or the other. It's going to mess us all up. So we need to find ways to work together. What about PeaceWorks, um, the original idea? How is that? Um, Bearing right now? Where does that stand? I, mean, I feel like I didn't do a fair uh, job answering your earlier question about Kind. So there's one last thing when you said, yeah. are we helpful? Kind is the only snack company in the world that can say, at, at our scale, that can say that every single thing we make leads with nutritionally dense ingredients recommended for daily consumption by the dietary guidelines. Mm -hmm. And there was just a study last week in The Lancet about how food is now a leading cause of death more than tobacco consumption, more than uh, several other ailments. And it's a leading reason, not just because of what people are putting in their bodies, like trans fats and 
saturated fats and sugar and sodium, but because of what they're not putting in their bodies, leading with whole nuts and whole grains. This was in the Lancet study. Uh, we had nothing to do with it, but it, it really reaffirms our philosophy that people need to eat more whole fruits, whole nuts, whole grains, legumes, vegetables, and as much as possible, our philosophy is to find ways to disrupt categories and provide that in people's diets. So every single thing we make leads with nutritionally dense ingredients. Right. Sorry I went back to the okay, ad. but that's uh, okay. Now tell us about PeaceWorks and where that stands. PeaceWorks, uh, I founded it 25 years ago, and it's a very tiny company today. I have not given it the right attention. Uh, it still exists and it's still struggling along, but it sells in the entire year. Less than kind will sell in two hours. But we want to change that. We've done two pilot projects to do like a PeaceWorks 2.0. We did a project in Jordan uh, where Israeli cutting-edge agricultural technology was deployed to try to help them make the desert bloom. And we were employing Syrian refugees and Jordanian Bedouins and some Egyptian farmers. And it was a very cool project, stunning in terms of qualitative uh, stuff, but it did not survive. Uh, we had to wind, wind it down. Just economically was not being able to be self-sustaining, but we're not giving up. We have, we're in the process of mapping out a PeaceWorks 2.0 version in partnership with the Jordanian kingdom, with the Hashemite kingdom, to try to, in a bigger scale and with all the lessons we have from our failures and mistakes, try this again and try to make the desert bloom and plant almond trees, plant crops from basil and other um, um, herbs and stuff and then try to sell them across the Arab world and in Israel and maybe in Europe. I want to go back to the food business now, okay? Sure. My turn. Um, when you talk about the problems um, that people have with what they're eating, our, and traditional food companies are under a lot of pressure right now. Do you think they're doomed? I mean, you keep seeing the mainstream publicly traded food companies having issues. The challenge that a lot of the large conglomerates have is that over the last 60, 70 years, they've gone to the lowest common denominator and they've, you know, a pound of refined flours or refined sugars cost you 25 to 37 cents. A pound of almonds cost you $2.85. A pound of other nuts cost you anywhere between, uh, peanuts are a little bit less, maybe a dollar or so, but most other tree nuts are three to eight dollars. So you can understand why these companies are compelled to move to the cheapest ingredients, but we're paying for it at the hospital. We're paying for it as a society with a rising diabetes and obesity epidemic. And so um, it is necessary for the food industry to move on to provide more high quality products, but it is challenging because you want them to be affordable. And so you need to make choices and you need to find the right balance. But the balance that we currently have in society is not the right balance. 75% of packaged foods have sweeteners. That's not the scary part. The scary part is how so many of these sweeteners are hidden from sight and how so many of these sweeteners are prevalent and predominant in some products where you would expect them not to be. Don't you guys, um, aren't you looking to lobby the FDA or have been lobbying the FDA to change the way um, food is listed on labels? We filed a petition uh, a, a month ago or so to update the nutrient content claims. The nutrient content claims are the ubiquitous messages in the front of package where you see great source of fiber, great source of calcium, 100% of your daily vitamin needs. 
And the problem with that is that the way the current regime works, it focuses on the quantity of a micronutrient rather than the quality of the overall food. So you can have sugar bombs that are basically just sugar supplemented with a vitamin, hiding and creating a health halo under that vitamin, but the consumer doesn't know that in order to get their 100% of vitamin C, they're also getting 64% of their total sugar recommended for that day in an enhanced beverage. And it exists in organic gummy bears, where people think that because they're organic, they might be good for you, but it's just sugar. It exists in our industry, in snack bars, where you have products that have 30, 40% sugar, but people are expecting them to be helpful, but they're just really vehicles for sugar delivery, which is really not, it's part of the reason why your microbiome is not working, why inflammatory diseases are, are uh, going crazy. These existing products that are leading with date paste that are not necessarily as bad as brown rice syrup or sugar, but it's still not as healthful as whole almonds, whole grains, whole fruits. Interesting. Shifting gears, I want to ask you what you think of President Trump's policy towards immigrants and Mexico. I think it's very misguided. I think um, we as a nation have the, not just the right, but the responsibility to protect our citizens. As a child who saw the war, well, from my father's eyes, and who, how my father was liberated by soldiers, it's not lost on me the essential importance that our armed services have in protecting our borders. I think we have the right to protect those borders. But to politicize an issue is, doesn't serve our nation. I know so many people that are, instead of coming to want to study to the United States, now they're going to Saudi Arabia or to Spain or to other places that are welcoming them. And we want to attract the smartest of the smartest. I think 40% of Fortune 500 CEOs or founders are either children or themselves immigrants. Immigrants or children of immigrants. 40%. Refugees and immigrants bring themselves this hunger, not just because I'm one, but I, 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 I know that it's, it, there's some amazing people we want to bring in. And 99% of the people that are trying to come to our country are people that are going to make us stronger and better. So we should be very, very guardian to keep out M13 and M16. That, those very scary gangs, I want my government to focus on that, not to focus on practices that are actually making it harder to detect the bad apples because we're focusing on, on the wrong things. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's Not the... that I have strong feelings about this or anything. Right, I was going to say, what, do you, what is Mexico's responsibility here? You touched on that. You know, I, I've not lived in Mexico for many years and I, I feel very American, even though I'm proud of my Mexican heritage. I could not tell you the Mexican policy, but as an American, I can tell you that Mexico should be a partner to the U.S. First and foremost, what we should do is make sure that Mexicans have opportunities in Mexico so that they can develop that country. Because otherwise, Central America even more, because a lot of the immigrants coming in now, Mexicans are not actually coming in anymore. It's Central Americans where in El Salvador, in Guatemala, there's so much strife that a lot of people are escaping that and some bad apples coming along. And so we want to be careful not to bring in the bad apples, but we're not bringing the good apples. So part of it is a partnership. But frankly, the U.S. economy, the way it's right now, unemployment is at a significant low. We need immigrants. We need people to come in to help us build this economy. It's not like we should be scared of bringing people that are talented, people that are, you know, I've met a lot of people that the humility and the warmth and the appreciation they have, and they're not, they're not people that are like just trying to 
soak up the system or abuse the system. There, there may be some bad apples everywhere, but the overwhelming majority of immigrants are hardworking people with good values that just want to do better for themselves and their community. So I, I'm a huge advocate of providing opportunities. My dad wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the mindset of the American spirit that people selflessly sacrifice so much to liberate a, an entire continent but it was good for all of us. It was good for America. America rose like crazy, became the foremost giant. America is, in my opinion, the only country in the history of humanity that has been so selfless in helping improve the world without asking for something in return, like the Marshall Plan. But guess what? That in the long term is enlightened self-interest. It makes us all stronger. And I think that's what I want to, uh, the policies that I would support. Do you talk to any of the Democratic candidates for president, and do you have one that you favor? I talk to Democrats and Republicans. I'm a very proud independent, um, and I would like moderates in the Republican Party and moderates in the, in the Democratic Party to have a stronger voice and to be able to forge consensus. I was telling you the problem in our society is that we're getting hijacked by extremism. Across the world, the rise of totalitarianism and thugs and, and, and uh, dictators, and in the United States, the increasing strength of the extremes. And the, the reason for that is that this tiny amount of extremists wake up in the morning and they think, how can I advance my cause? And they want to stop at nothing to advance their cause. And the vast majority of people are moderates, but they wake up in the morning and they think, what can I have for breakfast? And that's a fundamental challenge that moderates have, that unless they recognize that they have a responsibility every day to speak up, to be heard, and to do something to build that center, to build the ability for people to listen. And extremists versus uh, moderates is not whether you're from the left or whether you're from the right or whether you're from the center. It's anybody. You can be a conservative and be able to listen to the other side. You can be a progressive and be able to listen to the other side. It's when we stop listening and we think that we have all the answers that we start getting into trouble. What about Howard Schultz? He's a moderate and a food and beverage guy. He appealing at all? I think under the current system where the Democratic and Republican parties are so dominant and under the current system where it's very unlikely that Republicans are going to move to, towards a candidate like that, that's seen as more centrist progressive, I would very much want people like Howard Schultz, whose policies are the right policies and who I think is a, a great leader, to try to win the Democratic nomination. That would be, but I'm not an expert in this stuff. Right. And last question. How do you see using your influence on the world? I want to uh, be thoughtful and focused because there's like 20 things I care about and I don't have enough resources, time or ability to impact them. So the way I'm going to make my choices is not just what do I care the most about, but where do I think that I can add the most. And it's not just investing financially, but using my mind to creatively come up with models to do something different from the way it's been done. So that's what I'm really proud of is being able to create peaceworks, kind, uh, one voice, empathico, feed the truth. I love creating um, creative platforms for solving problems, whether it's through uh, using market forces, which whenever you can is the best way because they're scalable and sustainable, or whether it's uh, nonprofits but with a social enterprise entrepreneurial spirit to try to do things uh, that are disruptive. 
So that's what I what what I'm going to be doing in the coming years is incubating more of these efforts and like we're doing with Empatico or with One Voice or with Fit the Truth, seeding them, but then finding leaders to then make them self-sustainable and then independent, and then they need to be responsible for their operations. He has this mission to change the food industry um, to make it more healthy, which some would say is somewhat ironic because let's face it, I mean, these bars are not health food per se. Um, They're the cousin of the candy bar to be quite honest. I mean, they do have sugar in them. I mean, they have less sugar than candy bars by far, but he's not selling bananas. Um, he's selling a sweet thing. Um, and so he's kind of going to walk, walk a fine line. And I think he does that. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at SirWork.